We are gradually making our way to the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, has 50 chapters, and this morning we are going to look at chapter 45. So we're getting really close. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis uh, 45. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you, but the passage is also printed in the worship guide, so you can uh, follow along there if you would like. Genesis chapter 45, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28. The chapter that we come to this morning is the moment that we've actually been waiting for in the Joseph narrative. If you've been around over the past several weeks, have been following this story with us, this is the moment that you've been waiting for. Judah's speech, Judah was one of Joseph's brothers, um, his speech at the end of chapter 44 motivated Joseph to finally decide that, it was, that his brothers were now safe. God had changed them, and he can now reveal his identity to them because Judah's speech revealed to him that his brothers are now motivated by love, no longer selfishness. And so, in other words, the brothers passed the test that Joseph had put them through. And the narrative, the entire Joseph story, the Joseph narrative, reaches its climax with this chapter because we've been wondering, haven't we, for a few weeks, when will Joseph finally reveal his identity to his brothers? When will he finally reveal to them the fact that he is Joseph, that he is their brother? And we've, if you're like me, you've been wondering, you know, how exactly is it going to go down? What will happen? Well, Let's find out what happens. I'm going to read the chapter for us. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and now the, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. 
Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Egypt did so, and Joseph, the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Good advice, huh? It's advice we all need. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, that's Jacob, said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray to to God and ask for his help. God, we come to you now as we look into your word. This is your word, and so we need your spirit to bring it to life, to teach us, and to apply it to our lives. So we trust that you will do that for our good and your glory. We pray through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So the other night, Friday night, Katie and I watched the movie Lion. Have any of you seen that? Uh, Really good movie, uh, really powerful movie, really emotional movie. Um, Main character, Saru. So this movie is actually, it's a biographical drama um, based on a nonfiction book that Saru Breersley, something like that, Breersley, um, himself wrote about his own story. Um, when he was a, a young child, uh, he was separated from his family in India. Uh, I won't tell you all the details so that if you haven't seen it, I don't ruin the film for you. This much you can know by reading a description. He's separated from his family, and from that point on, you're wondering, um, the question's lingering, Will he ever reunite with his family? And then pretty fast after that, the movie forwards about 25 years, and it begins this journey of Saru trying to locate his family in India and reunite with him. And like I said, all throughout the film, you're wondering, at this point, you know it's going to happen, especially if you've read the description of the film. You know it's going to happen, but you're wondering, when is it going to come? And how is it going to go down? How will it happen? And then finally, toward the end of the film, the moment comes that you've been waiting for. 
And it is this incredibly, intensely emotional moment in which Saru reunites with his family, and he's touching his mother's face, his mother's touching his face, tears are flowing down their cheeks, uh, tears were welling up in my eyes, Katie's eyes. Uh, it is an incredibly emotional scene. Well, we have one of those kinds of scenes here in Genesis 45. And as I mentioned before I read the passage, this is a scene, a moment, that we have been waiting for for several weeks. Really, ever since we resumed the Genesis series back in January, beginning with chapter 37, because it's in that chapter in which Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And as we follow the plot line after that, we wonder, will there be a time when he's reunited with his brothers? How will it go down? What will it be like? What will happen? Well, I've already read it for you, but here in this chapter is that moment. It is that time, and it is an incredibly emotional scene. And what we gather from this scene, um, the message that we take away from it is this, that we are reconcilers because God has reconciled us to himself. We are reconcilers because God has reconciled us to himself. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at what it means to be reconciled, and then we're going to talk about what it means to be a reconciler. So let's look at what it means to be reconciled. Judah's speech, the one brother of Joseph, at the end of Genesis 44 was the clinching moment for Joseph because Joseph has been testing his brothers, right? Um, He's given them multiple tests because he knew who his brothers used to be. We're talking about a group of boys who sold their brother into slavery, considered killing him initially, and then sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. The father, Jacob, favored Joseph more than the other brothers, Uh, That, as you could understand, made the other brothers um, very jealous. And Joseph didn't help matters because he was basically a spoiled brat, we saw back in Genesis 37. Uh, He knew he was favored by his father, and he seemed to rub it in the uh, faces of his brothers. And so Judah gives this speech at the end of chapter 44, which is motivated by love. And it becomes clear to Joseph, with Judah Judah as the spokesman of the brothers, that change and transformation has taken place in the lives of his brothers. Something has happened. They are now different men. And so Joseph knows that the time has come for him to reveal his identity to them. He knows that it is safe because they are safe for him to disclose his identity to them. And so that's exactly what he does early on in this chapter. Um, verse 3, Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And then he asks, he wants to know about his, his father's well-being. Is he still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph is overcome with emotion in this scene. Now, it's not the first time that we've seen Joseph express emotion when it comes to his brothers. There have been two other times prior to this in which he actually had to leave their presence and weep because of all that God was doing and just the weight of everything that he was feeling. You know, we've talked about this, that Joseph had been changed by God, and we're about to talk more specifically about that. So Joseph had experienced transformation in his life, and he was beginning to see this transformation that had taken place in the lives of 
his brothers, yet there was still that horrible thing that they had done against him, selling him into slavery, that basically sent him into a downward spiral of him encountering injustice after injustice. Basically, you know, it's the kind of life that you would look at and say, that is unfair. That was the life that Joseph found himself in, really all because of what his brothers did to him. And so you could imagine the mixed emotions that Joseph's feeling and just the intensity of those emotions. And then we get to this moment when he, he's confident that the, there's change has taken place, that his brothers are safe now, and he discloses his identity to them. He's overcome with emotion, as are his brothers when they find this out. They're also fearful, dismayed, because it's understandable for them to think at this point, uh-oh, all along, this has been our brother. He's been testing us. He's been holding out. And now that he has told us his identity, now he's going to seek his revenge. Wouldn't you have been fearful of that in the moment? Fearful that he was going to somehow exact revenge against you. Verses 4 through 8 um, are incredible to me. They're incredible to me because of how Joseph takes the initiative to move near to his brothers. He comes close to them. Verse 4, Joseph says to them, come near to me, please. And so they come near. Now, I'm sure that there was still fear that they felt and experienced on their part. Come near for what? (laughs) What are you going to do to us? But I'm guessing, too, that the tone of voice um, indicated for them that Joseph was safe. And then he demonstrates his safety with what he says to them next in verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Not only does Joseph invite his brothers to come physically close to him, but Joseph is now moving emotionally close to his brothers. He disarms them. He's direct with his words. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He immediately names the core issue. What do I mean by that? The core issue for these brothers is the guilt that they are suffering from. And we've seen this guilt pop up, particularly in chapters 44 and 43, those moments where we started to see repentance happen, that turning from what they had done and turning to the grace of God. So we saw these moments of how they're feeling, they're experiencing the guilt and shame of what they had done to their brother all those years before. And Joseph is emotionally intelligent. He knows, I mean, he's been planning this moment for a while, I'm sure, knowing that, okay, when I am confident that they have changed, when I'm confident that they are safe, I'm going to reveal myself to them. But I have to be aware of something, this guilt that they're going to be fearing, and that guilt is going to cause them to also be fearful of me, fearful of the fact that maybe I'm going to do them harm. And so Joseph right away immediately names that core issue. He, says to, he reveals himself and says, look, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. I know that you're feeling an overwhelming, enormous guilt. But don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. 
In this moment, Joseph gives up his power of knowledge. This power of knowledge that he was holding over his brothers. Now, probably rightfully so. Based on what they had done to him in the past, he had to grow in confidence that they were now safe. But he had this knowledge that they didn't, right? And what was the knowledge? It was simply that he was Joseph. He knew that he was Joseph, but the brothers didn't. And so he was playing this pretty well to test their character, to test whether or not they had changed. But in this moment, he finally gives up that power of knowledge that he could have continued to use to control his brothers. He could have, he, he could have gone on playing this against them for days, weeks, years to come. But rather, he gives up that power of knowledge and he invites them in. Question as we pause here at this point. Do people feel invited into your life? Or do they feel like you keep them at a distance? We're asking the same question that we asked last week. Are you safe? Are you a safe person? Do you, by your own initiative, seek to move emotionally near to others? Or because of your own baggage, do you tend to keep people at a distance? And probably the way this plays out, if we're honest, is you tend to blame others for your inability to invite them in when it's probably more of your own baggage. Do people feel invited into your life or do they feel like you keep them away? Consider how Joseph could have responded. We already touched on this, but he could have held it over their heads, their, sin, their uh, wicked sin that they had committed against him. He could have rubbed their noses in it, he could have promoted or elevated his own righteousness over them. He could have kept them at arm's length as though they weren't good enough to be in his company. He could have controlled them. He could have continued to manipulate the situation to enjoy power over them, but he does none of this. He does none of it. He forgives. How does he do that? How do you forgive your brothers who considered killing you, but decided against it, but instead sold you into slavery, causing you to face injustice after injustice in a foreign land? Where do you find the strength, the power, the capacity to forgive such people, even if they are your family? And Actually, maybe it was probably worse because it was his family. You know, you know what it's like. It's one thing for somebody who you're not really in relationship to harm you, but for a person that you are in relationship with to harm you, that's a whole other thing. We have to think about what has happened to Joseph, the kind of person that he has become over the years. He's had a lot of time to reflect and process. Now, he, he wouldn't have chosen this time. He wouldn't have chosen these circumstances. But he had a lot of time to reflect and process. Those years in prison, those years in hard situations, those years as God caused him to prosper. He had lots of time to reflect and process. 
He had lots of time to be patient in interpreting and reading his own story and how things were playing out. He had lots of time to wrestle with God. And it's, it's important that we include that in this. Because what we want to avoid is this thinking that Joseph went through all this inc- extremely difficult stuff that I could never imagine, and yet very easily he just came out of it with this strong, intense faith in God and transformed character and the ability to forgive other people. There's no way that would, would be the case. Joseph suffered. And the bad news, maybe it's bad news for you this morning, is that the only way to real character transformation is through suffering. Now, that's counterintuitive. Um, I mean, maybe based on your life experiences, you, you know that to be true. But we still resist it, don't we? we? We get into those hard circumstances of life, and we want more than anything else to be delivered from them. And that's not a bad uh, thing to, to want. I mean, you read the Psalms, the psalmists are constantly praying for deliverance. But what could change? What kind of different perspective could we have if we really believed that it was suffering that made us more like Jesus, that it was suffering that actually changed and transformed our character to shape us into people of virtue? Joseph has reached a point in his life where he is secure in God and in God's plan for his life. And he's able to say that. He says it three times in this dialogue with his brothers, this speech to his brothers. He says it three times in verse 5, in verse 7, and in verse 8. Look at verse 5 where he says it first. It's the one we just looked at. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph has learned how to reinterpret his story. He's learned how to reinterpret his story with God as the central figure and character in his story. This changes everything. It doesn't make things easier, but it changes everything. The question ultimately comes down to this, and I think we asked this question in a prior sermon in Genesis. Will I trust God or will I trust myself? Those are the two questions that we have at the end of the day in life. Will I trust God or will I trust myself? It appears as though Joseph had given up on trusting himself. Let's go back to the beginning of his story in Genesis 37. Joseph, uh, as we saw there, was a braggart. Uh, He was a tattletale. He was a spoiled brat. He was favored by his father. He knew it, and he made matters worse when it came to the jealousy and resentment that his brothers felt toward him by rubbing it in their faces. This is the kind of kid at 17 years old, that Joseph was. Maybe some of you would say, oh, that's every teenager. That's another sermon, another conversation. But it's not every teenager. Joseph was insecure. Even though he had the favor of his father, he was 
desperately insecure in the same way that his brothers were all desperately insecure. There was a lot of insecurity going around. And that's why we've been talking about insecurity versus security over the past couple weeks because life can, in some ways, completely be summed up by that, by insecurity versus security. And the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he does for us, his people, ultimately stabilizes us and roots us in security that we can't find elsewhere. All those years in, in slavery, all those years in prison, I mean, you could imagine. It scares me to think of myself in that situation, of how I could see how easily it would have been for me to allow bitter and resentment to just grow and grow and grow. And so that when this moment came, when I encountered my brothers who had done this horrible thing against me, the anger would have just exploded. If that's how this narrative went, you wouldn't be surprised by that. You would, you would probably, you may not even think much of it. You might think, yeah, kind of expected that based on what they did to him. But that's not what happened to Joseph. And it's not, here's an important point. It's not necessarily because of what was happening in that moment. This moment that we're in, chapter 45, with Joseph with his brothers. It's because of everything that had happened in the moments leading up to it. When we think about um, difficult circumstances in our lives, when we think about temptation, we, we usually imagine ourselves in those situations and wonder, what would I do in the moment? But I think a better way, a more strategic way of thinking is, what am I doing in all of the moments leading up to that moment to prepare? The title of last week's sermon was, who, who am I becoming or what kind of person I, am I becoming? That is the question that we need to be asking every day. Who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Because if we're growing in Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness is going to exhibit itself in those hard circumstances of life, in those moments of temptation or whatever it might be. Christ-likeness is going to exhibit itself because we've been preparing ourselves for those moments through wrestling with God, through deep engagement with God, I'm going back to his promises. This is all, of course, what Joseph would have been doing over the course of the years. This is the path of true flourishing. A reflective life lived with God, in God's presence. Seeking God's perspective on life, on our circumstances. I think that each and every one of us, deep down inside, we want to live wisely in the world. We want to find a wise way of being in the world. But too often, we're looking for formulas to try to arrive at that. You know, we tell ourselves things like, well, if I am a good person, if I do good things, then God will bless me and keep me from harm. But then you experience real life, and you realize that that formula doesn't work. Or you read the Bible, Joseph's life, and you realize, huh, I don't see that formula at work here. Formulas don't work in life. I mean, in some fields of life. But when it comes to wisdom and living wisely in the world, formulas don't work. Our stories gain depth through trial. We we come back to this difficult, difficult reality. God knows what's best for us. 
And God is willing to allow us to experience harm sometimes because he loves us so much. Now, I have two daughters, and I can relate to this a little bit. Like, there are times where I just have to let my girls suffer the consequences sometimes of their actions, even when everything inside of me is crying out, remove the consequence. I don't want them to see them this visibly upset. I don't want them to be mad at me, and they're really mad at me right now, and I like it better when they're not mad at me. And in my best moments, I don't take away the consequences. It's part of life. And God loves us like a parent, because he is a parent. He's our heavenly father. And there are times where he allows us to suffer the consequences of our sin, or sometimes has nothing to do with our sin. Sometimes we have to encounter the painful realities of other people's sin, and we get caught up in it, and somehow God is still sovereign. And that's where we're going here with this, this theological truth that God is sovereign. That's what the book of Genesis is about. Uh, that's what the book of Exodus is about, Leviticus, num- the, what the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible was out, uh, is about. All the books of the Bible together is about, guess, God is sovereign. God is in control. On the one hand, that comforts us. On the other hand, it troubles us. Because if God is sovereign and he is in control, then why am I going through what I'm going? Good question, right? And sometimes we ask the question like we, we've tricked God. Ah, you're sovereign, but look at this. God invites us to wrestle with him, to engage deeply. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. The book of Psalms are intensely emotional. We we see psalmists sometimes um, saying things that we think, you shouldn't say that in church. You shouldn't cry that out to God. But God invites that because he's big enough to handle it. But this perspective that Joseph has is basically this, that your plight is also your redemption. It's not my uh, phrase. I I found that in a book. So I have to be fair. I have to say that. Can't remember in my reading this week who it was that said it or I would give them credit. But it wasn't me. Your plight is also your redemption. It's so hard for us to accept. Because what is your plight right now? What could it look like for you to have a different perspective that would cause you to realize, I hate this, I wish it were different, but this is also my redemption. This is the pathway to flourishing, and I'm going to engage God deeply, and I'm going to fight for that perspective of his sovereignty over the whole of life. Jacob is aware of his own flaws. That, I mean, that, that's one of the big reasons as he's able to forgive his brothers He's had that time to reflect and do self-assessment. He knows what resides in him. He knows what he's capable of. And so that has given him power to forgive. But let me share this quote with you from Gordon Wenham, a, a commentator on this passage. He says, the truth in, This truth, that is God's sovereignty, enables Joseph to reinterpret his narrative. From a human perspective, his narrative reads like a nightmare a series of injustices inflicted upon him. The eternal perspective is that God is working through him to bring about what is good. This enables him to forgive and encourages his brothers to do the same. 
And notice what this interpretation of Joseph's own story does. It bears the fruit of the Spirit. Bears the fruit of the Spirit. Love, faith, joy, peace. You know, those characteristics. This deep trust in the sovereignty of God, this deep engagement with God, bears the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, Joseph's character is being changed and transformed from the inside out. His actions are now different. What he's capable of doing is now different because of the work that God is doing in his interior life. Joseph now knows that he is part of God's purpose. It's amazing how each time that I, in verse, uh, was it 5, 6, and then 8 again? Uh, each time he says, this, this was actually God. God. God did this, but I get it, it was for a bigger purpose. It, it was for my good. It was for God's glory. This redefines the situation for Joseph. Joseph is deeply human. He's not a, a puppet. And so, as we bring these two things together, human responsibility and God's sovereignty, I'm I'm on dangerous ground now. Because theologians have been trying to resolve this tension forever. And here's what I'm going to say. I'm not even going to attempt to resolve it. Now you're thinking, oh, wait, you just took the easy way out. Life is not a formula to figure out. God is not one to figure out. God discloses his identity to us. And Scripture even tells us that You know, God tells us what we need to know, but his ways are higher than our ways. Formulas aren't going to work in the realm of faith, but we're talking about faith. We're talking about wisdom. Joseph is deeply human in this scene. He's impacted by his own emotions and the emotions of his brothers. Joseph is not detached. This is risky this self-disclosing engagement that he participates in. And we could summarize it in this way, that Joseph is able to do this because he knows God well and he knows himself well. And those two two things are a mystery as well. John Calvin, um, one of the theologians of the Reformation, um, began his most famous work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, by saying, I'm going to paraphrase something along these lines, that Basically, um, true wisdom is this, knowing God and knowing ourselves, and it's hard to know which comes first because they're so interconnected. That's what is going on here. It's an example, an illustration of that. Joseph has obviously been uh, wrestling deeply with God. He's come to know God in his ways more, and that has shed light on who Joseph is. He is transformed. He is changed. He knows himself better. As we've said, he's now emotionally intelligent. Because in the past, as a 17-year-old kid, he would have controlled his brothers with the information that he had that they didn't have about his identity. But rather, he discloses himself and says, come near to me. And let me say right away, don't be angry or distressed with yourselves because I know that's where you're going to go, but I don't want you to go there. I want reconciliation. They're dismayed. They're They're fearful. That's, that's their initial response. They, they don't know what to expect. They don't know where this is going. This word is a term used to paralyzing fear as felt by those involved in war. So that's the intensity of the emotion that the brothers are feeling in this moment. They're, they're feeling an emotion that is 
usually in the Bible used for those who are in war. They are moving toward true intimacy, but if you look at, back at verse 3, his brothers could not answer because they were dismayed. They were fearful, and so they couldn't yet quite engage. They couldn't quite move near. And so Joseph takes the initiative. He knows that if they're really going to achieve authentic reconciliation, they're going to have to come close to each other. And so he invites them to do that. And then verse 15, starting with verse 14 for context, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. I love that contrast. The end of verse 3, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. The end of verse 15, after that his brothers talked with him. Reconciliation has happened. They have come back together. They've been reunited. They are now engaging with one another. The bridge, uh, the rift has been bridged. Intimacy has been achieved. And Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to feel the emotion of this scene. Do you feel it? Allow yourself to feel it. It's okay. It's part of being human. It's like, uh, you know, as I was watching the movie um, the other night, the Lion movie, um, it reached that, that scene that we had been waiting for. You knew it was coming, the um, being reconciled, reunited with uh, his family. And I know that Katie's crying because Katie cries at every movie we watch. Um, that's what our girls always say. They give her a hard time. That it could be anything and she's uh, crying. Um, but I'm the same way. I just try to not disclose it. And it's so weird. I've been married to Katie for 15 and a half years. She knows I'm human. I cry. She's seen me cry. Um, she's seen me cry at movies, but still, to this day, Friday night in that moment, I'm, you know, doing one of these. Uh, I'm not actually crying. My eyes, you know, are itchy. I'm, hope, I'm looking out of the corner of my eye. Okay, good. She's not looking at me. It is okay to feel emotion. It is okay to be human. It is okay to feel and engage with this scene. And if, I'm not saying that if you don't cry over this, there's something wrong, but there could be something wrong if you never allow yourself to feel emotion. So feel the emotion we're meant to. This is powerful. It's intensely emotional. The darkness has lifted. And we should feel that emotion too. We know what has gone on in the, lives of this in the life of this family. We know all of the brokenness and the dysfunction. But chapter 37 is undone here in verse 15. Chapter 37, when Joseph is sold into slavery, it is undone. It doesn't mean that Joseph doesn't remember everything that happened to him because that's not an emotionally intelligent response to act as though it didn't happen. He's been shaped and changed by it all, but it has undone the curse of it. It has lifted the curse. Reconciliation and intimacy have taken place. And because we have been reconciled to God, and that's ultimately, you know, we could summarize everything that we've said up to this point. The reason that Joseph is able to reconcile with his brothers is because Joseph has been reconciled to God. 
At a very deep level, he has experienced the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God in the midst of all of his sins and character flaws and brokenness and mess. He has known God's grace deeply there. Not abstractly out there, but in here in the darkest, scariest places. Have you experienced God's grace, grace, mercy, and kindness there? Some of you have grown up in the church. You know theology. If I said, what is the gospel right now? You would say, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, to reconcile me to God so that I could be with him forever. There's nothing that I could do to accomplish that. It was all Jesus. But have you experienced it in here? Deeply. To the point that you are in the process of applying mercy and grace to your worst places. Maybe, in some cases, that only you know of. Joseph is able to do this because he's been reconciled. What does it mean or look like to be a reconciler? Don't worry, this point's not going to be as long as the first one. But I remember in preaching class, my seminary professor, my preaching professor always said, make sure that each of your points is the same length for some reason. So I guess I might be breaking that rule right now. But I don't think you're going to complain. This point is going to be not, not as long as the first point. What does it mean to be a reconciler? Well, let's connect this back to Joseph's dream that he had in chapter 37. So his brothers already hate him because he's favored uh, by his father. And he has these dreams, two different occasions. He tells it to his brothers once, to his father another time. And um, in the dream, he's basically told that, or he sees that he is a ruler over his family. Now, even if that dream, that vision is from God, which it obviously came to be, you don't tell your brothers that. They already hate you. They already resent you. Keep it to yourself. But he goes ahead and tells them anyway. But nonetheless, that dream, that vision is fulfilled here. Joseph is ruling over his family, but it's not what we might have expected back from chapter 37. Because if you didn't know the story in chapter 37, you would think, this isn't going to end well. He's going to use his power uh, over his family um, to bring them harm. He's going, to bring, he's going to use it for selfish purposes. But that is not at all how Joseph uses his power and his leadership here in this chapter. The biblical story is really the story of reconciliation. Because if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, the first two chapters, God basically tells human beings made in his image, I want you to be rulers over the earth on my behalf. That's your vocation. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what I made you to do. Be rulers over the earth. Be good stewards of creation for my glory and the good of others. But something goes wrong. Alienation, estrangement from God. The first humans rebel against God as we rebel against God. And we'd re- we, we want to still be rulers, but we want to use our leadership over creation and others for selfish purposes. And so from that point on, there's the need to be reconciled to God. But when we're reconciled to God, that's not the only reconciliation that happens. Because when we are estranged from God... I mean, look at this in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, the first humans. They become estranged within themselves. They become estranged to one another, and they become estranged to the creation as a whole. 
And so the work of reconciliation in the world is for God to reconcile his children back to himself so that they might be reconciled to themselves. And we see this work happening in Joseph's life, in Joseph's life, but then also reconciled to others. We see that, but then also reconciled to creation in terms of our role and our vocation. And we see Joseph redeeming who humans are supposed to be through his leadership here. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, this work of reconciliation is grand. It includes everything that is broken under creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 19. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning that, well, let me read the rest and I'll come back to it. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The message of the Bible is reconciliation. The story of the Bible is reconciliation, beginning with reconciliation to God. And notice that that part where I pause for a moment. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This we see, this is a change we see dramatically in Joseph's life. He no longer views his brothers according to the flesh. He is now viewing them through the work of Christ. Obviously, Christ hasn't come and died on the cross yet, but God is still holding out his promise of salvation, that salvation is by grace, by what God must do for his people. That's the essence of the Christian faith. And so Joseph, he's experienced that personally and is now learning to view others through that lens. Well, wait, if God could reconcile me to himself, he could reconcile my brothers to himself and he can reconcile me to them. Joseph is a strong leader. And we have to make note of that. This is not just that there's more than one thing going on. This is not just a family situation. This is an empire situation. Joseph is a leader. He has incredible authority here in the Egyptian empire, given to him by Pharaoh himself. We see Pharaoh continuing to bless and say, oh, if that's your family, then Give them gifts because in Egypt now, what is yours is theirs. He's he's experienced that level of blessing and favor from Pharaoh. But Joseph, with this, we already saw how with this enormous power over his brothers, he chooses to use his power redemptively. Now, we already talked about how he could have used it so differently. And in the past, chapter 37, he did use it differently. That knowledge he had of the dreams... He didn't need to disclose that to them. It was not helpful at the time. And it was selfish. And yet now we see him using his power um, for love. He uses his power for the common good. Again, verse 5, God sent me before you for what purpose? To preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
Joseph, without even knowing it, in each scene of his life, was fulfilling God's very purposes for his people. Going back to the promise that God made to Abraham, that from you I will bring about a family of people that will bless the earth. Without Joseph and what's going on in this storyline right now, God's people would have come to an end through the famine. And yet through Joseph, again, even though in the scenes of his life leading up to this, he's not aware of what's happening, but he's come to this perspective that through the sovereignty of God, he is using even the injustices that has happened in his life for a grander purpose. Joseph could have exploited the past, but he chose not to. He invites his brothers to put the past behind them. What a gift. This idea of not holding the sins of others against them. How could that change our lives? How could it change maybe our leadership? Because we all exercise leadership in different areas of life. What would it look like for us to not hold the sins of others against them? And that does not mean that we continue to allow people to commit the same sins, to harm us and hurt us. Remember what has happened here. There's been a scene of reconciliation in which Joseph's brothers have repented of their sin, and they have sought forgiveness. So we have to keep that context in mind here, that we could talk, that could be a whole other sermon as well. Um, But coming back to this idea that Joseph is a leader, and we see him using his leadership for good. Um, Bruce Waltke, commenting on this passage as we wrap up, says, the brothers collectively exhibit the virtues of reconciliation. They have become the kingdom of God, a family fit to rule the world. This is what God had in mind for his people all along, to be a display people to the world, to be a picture of the kingdom of God, to hold out a vision for what humans are meant to be in relationship to God and to all of creation as they seek to bless others. We live in a time, a climate in our culture in which there is an enormous opportunity for us as the church to do the very things that we're talking about here, to be people of reconciliation in a culture that is unbelievably divided about pretty much everything. Um, Just this past Friday, the other day, uh, one of my seminary professors uh, shared an article Uh, on Twitter, and the title of the article was A Quiet Exodus, Why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. And at one point, there's a quote in here from Michael Emerson. I actually um, was able to take a class from Michael Emerson in in seminary. He's the author of the book Divided by Faith, which I highly recommend. We used to have copies out in the lobby, but I don't think we do. Um, We can order some more. But he says this, The election itself was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of reconciliation in at least the past 30 years. It's about to completely break apart. Now, some of you hear that and you say, he is being overly dramatic. But, you know, there are so many different ways that we could apply this. But I'll say this. Who are we called to be as God's people in the world? Participants in the Ministry of Reconciliation. And this could apply to so many areas of our culture. Like I mentioned, we're so incredibly divided. But obviously, 
racial division and racial injustice is a horrible stain on our country and a horrible stain on the American church. How will we move forward as God's people? We must repent and we must seek reconciliation. We can't do that apart from relationship. So I think I'm not going to say any more than this. I'll just leave this basic application because it wasn't what the sermon was about. This challenge, get into relationships with people who are different from you, people who don't look like you, people from different racial backgrounds, different cultures, because in that you will receive a gift and God will enlarge your perspective and he will help you to no longer see through according to the flesh, but through Christ and his reconciling work. Last thing, the father at the end of this narrative. Could you imagine the emotion that Jacob, that, that Jacob feels? He thinks his son has been dead this whole time. In the same way that the mother from the movie Lion thought that her son was dead all of these years. I can't even begin to put myself into that situation to find out that all of this time he's been alive. And now there's this opportunity. We're going to have another one of those scenes that we've been waiting for, for Joseph and Jacob to come back together. But this, how this passage ends is another picture of the gospel. Joseph telling his brother, or giving his brothers all of these gifts. He lavishes them with gifts. Same brothers who committed this horrible sin and injustice against them. He lavishes them with gift after gift. He's seeking to take care of them, and he wants these gifts to reach the Father and for them all to come back because he realizes, my suffering has ultimately been for your benefit. What a picture of the gospel. Jesus, the one who suffered unjustly, the innocent one, on the cross for us, lavishing us with gift after gift that we do not deserve. But his suffering was for our benefit. Our stories are not our own. They exist for the benefit of the other. Through our stories, we reveal God's story. So let's not be afraid to tell our stories. Let's not be afraid to be students of our stories, to pay attention to our stories and what God is doing because in all of the hard stuff, in everything that is going on, God is telling us, God is writing a story which will ultimately enable us to participate in his work of reconciliation in the world because he uses our stories for redemptive purposes. Let's pray. Father, I know for some of us who are maybe suffering in this moment that how I just ended the sermon just seems so far from something that we're able to believe in this moment. I pray for the ability to believe, to exercise faith, because even that is a gift from you. And I pray that that would encourage us because even though we can't muster up faith on our own, you are able to grant faith. So grant us all faith to believe that you are sovereign, that you are working out your purposes in and through our stories for the good of not only ourselves, but for the world that you love so much. We pray in Christ's name, amen.